everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Sports Kiki Podcast here on this Saturday. It is December, is it 17th or 18th? It's December 17th. Had to check my phone. Thank you for listening. Episode number 145. I got that right. Don't you worry. My name is Alex Reamer. I got that right as well. And if you want to subscribe to the show, please feel free to do so. Much appreciated. You can find us wherever you can find your favorite Outsports podcasts. We are available Spotify, Apple, Google. You know the drill. Download, listen, rate, and subscribe. I'm like a robot. You just wind me up and I can start off the show no matter what headspace I'm in. But in all seriousness, great to have you aboard here. I'm really excited for my guest this week. Um, eh, Well, yeah, the big news story this week, one of the big news stories was the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. President Joe Biden signed it into law uh, in a great ceremony in the White House lawn this week. The White House is lit up in rainbow pride colors. Always great to see that. Um, So many of the plaintiffs and landmark LGBTQ rights Supreme Court cases are on hand as well. Um, Many LGBTQ celebrities, some athletes are on hand, including two athletes who we've profiled at Outsports. Former college athlete standouts Jade Hines-Clark and Amaya Carey Hines-Clark. Jade was a basketball standout at the University of Richmond. Amaya was a track and field standout at VCU. They met five years ago as rivals, rival athletes going to competing schools. And, uh, well, they just got married in October. And on the two-month anniversary of their wedding, they saw President Biden uh, sign the Respect for Marriage Act into law and codify uh, their marriage rights into federal law. So pretty damn cool. Pretty damn cool indeed. Um, And my guest this week is Ben Miller, who is the host of one of my favorite podcasts, the Bad Gays Podcast. Also co-author of the book, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. Ben um, has a great show running through, as you may expect, uh, based on the title. Some of the most infamous gays or sus- and suspected gays in history. Uh, one of whom is a conservative writer by the name of Andrew Sullivan. And within the episode about Andrew Sullivan, Ben and his co-host um, introduced the idea that same-sex marriage is actually a conservative concept. And Andrew Sullivan wrote what is regarded to be one of the perennial essays that got the idea of same-sex marriage uh, in the mainstream discourse, if you will, in the New Republic in 1989, I think was the published date. And Andrew Sullivan presented it as a conservative concept, marriage. And it was a way, he said, to, uh, to ingratiate gay people into society and have them part of mainstream broader society and quell a lot of the queer liberation, radical queer movements that were going on around the time as well. And as you would have it, Justice Anthony Kennedy, a conservative Reagan appointee, was the Supreme Court justice who signed, who wrote and authored the majority opinion in Obergefell, the landmark Supreme Court case that, uh, you know, granted same-sex marriage as a federal right. So when I heard that on this podcast several months back, I said, whoa, that's something I never considered before. And you devout listeners of the program may notice that I've talked about that concept a little bit when the Respect for Marriage Act has come up over the last few months. So I said, hey, it was signed into law this week. Let's go right to the source, Ben Miller. So that's coming up in a few moments. 
uh, you know, what's the sports tie-in? Gay athletes, LGBTQ athletes, they get married just like everybody else. So there, that's your sports tie-in. But it's a great con, con uh, it's a great conversation and one that, uh, well, I, I would not be able to have if I did not have this show as an excuse to have it. So there you go. That's coming up in a few moments. But I did want to briefly talk about uh, the biggest journalism story of the week, and it has a direct LGBTQ tie-in. Uh, Grant Wall uh, died suddenly last Friday in Qatar due to an aneurysm. Um, his autopsy revealed and his wife announced a couple of days ago. Uh, Grant Wall, you may remember, um, first of all, a legendary soccer writer, um, was covering the World Cup. He uh, was a prominent supporter of LGBTQ rights. His brother, Eric, is an out gay man. And Grant was detained a few weeks back at the start of the World Cup by Qatari officials for wearing the LGBTQ pride colors uh, on a shirt when he was on his way into the press box and he was detained and not allowed to wear that shirt. Um, so he died suddenly on Friday. Uh, his brother Eric was really just so hard to see a family member uh, grieve and come to grips with their brother's death in real time. Um, and it's hard to, you know, there have been some nasty conspiracies surrounding Grant Wall's death. Uh, some anti-vaxxers have jumped on it, for example, because uh, his wife is actually a leading epidemiologist who was on President Biden's uh, COVID-19 team at the start of his administration, and uh, just really grotesque stuff. But we do latch on to conspiracies in this society when, uh, when reality doesn't sit well with us from the standpoint that it's, it's hard to come to grips with the fact that life is just random. So in some cases coming up with some elaborate conspiracy as an explanation for the inexplicable makes us feel better. I mean, Grant Wall was a healthy 48-year-old man who felt a little run down, but that was because he was staying up late and covering soccer games into the wee hours of the morning, not sleeping while traveling, felt totally fine. He was working right up until his death. I mean, like, there were still Instagram stories he had posted up, tweets. I mean, just he was just so sudden. And so hard to come to grips with. Um, so yeah, just a uh, a tough end to a uh, what's been a really tough World Cup off the field. Um, so yeah, I did just want to mention that, uh, given the tie-in as well. And we've been covering the story at Outsports. Really hard to transition from something like that. So I'm gonna let it let things breathe for a second or two, and then we'll get back to uh, my conversation with Ben Miller and get his thoughts on not necessarily the Respect for Marriage Act itself, but again, the idea of same-sex marriage actually being a conservative institution. Again, it was something that when I first heard it, I had to do a mental double take. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense on the face of it, but he explains. And it's, again, I'm glad I could use this show as an excuse to, uh, to talk to him. So that's coming up on the other side. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome back to the show. As I was saying in the open, Ben Miller is uh, the co-author of Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, and one of the hosts of the Bad Gays podcast. Ben, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's great to talk with you. And, um, you know, as I was saying to you before I uh, officially pressed record here, I thought your episode about Andrew Sullivan was eye-opening for two reasons. One, I watched him on all these political talk shows growing up, and I was like, oh, you know, gay guy. seems He seems all right, but nope, terrible guy, as it turns out, seems like it. Um, <laughs> and I was disillusioned, I guess. 
And also his conservative argument for gay marriage. Like, so when most people hear that, you know, how could, I think they're, it's hard to really grasp, like how can an argument for gay marriage be conservative? And with the Respect for Marriage Act signed this week, that would be a good time to ask you to explain a little bit because, yeah, it, it caught me when I first heard it. Sure. Um, <laughs> so the thing about gay marriage is that I would argue it's actually, it is a it is a fairly conservative idea. I mean, there's a lot of things, going back to Sullivan, there's a lot of things that he's argued for like, you know, the existence of biological differences between the races um, that are just kind of beneath conversation. Um, the marriage argument is, I think, the marriage argument that he makes is, I think, on its own terms, um, eloquently made and well argued, and I think fundamentally correct. I mean, I don't share his opinion that it's a good thing, but I share his opinion. I mean, I share his analysis, essentially, Yeah. Um, that to integrate gay and lesbian people into the couple form and to integrate them into the institution of marriage is a conservative response, a coherent conservative response to the challenges of gay liberation, the challenges to existing social structures of gay liberation, hmm. um, and of the increasing loud presence um, of gay and lesbian people in the public sphere since the 1960s. And so the way that argument goes is this. Basically, there have been since the 1960s gay liberation activists um, making extremely disruptive arguments about not just their desire to have their relationships recognized by the state, yeah. but arguments about what the state recognition of relationships should look like in general. Mm -hmm. Arguments about um, what the family unit should look like and whether the family unit should mm -hmm. look the way that it does for everyone. Whether more kinds of families should be recognized by the state, whether families should be recognized by the state at all. Hmm. Um, and these are really uh, ideas that really challenge a lot of the foundational um, concepts of the social order of the what I'm a historian, so what I'll call the Fordist era of production and exchange. And so that's people think of the sort of 1950s, yeah. um, single earner family, right. White House picket right. fence, kids, et cetera, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And that sort of nuclear family ideal based on that. And now that that has always only been an ideal, right? Yeah. But um, really from the beginning of the, of the existence of the gay identity, right, from the late 19th century, um, really from the beginning of the gay identity, um, it's always been in tension with this family shape ideal. And Andrew Sullivan's proposition in that article is that he's going to reunify this. He's going to mm -hmm. integrate gay and lesbian mm -hmm. people into this, I won't say traditional because it's not, but into right. this conservative mid-century sort of modern nuclear middle-class yeah. family structure. And... Uh -huh. There's two tracks of this. One track is the kind of ideational front where Andrew Sullivan is writing and making arguments and there's a kind of conversation between different activists. Um, this is uh, really transformed, the kind of activist debate among gay people is really transformed by the uh, AIDS pandemic. So many people died. So many people who were among the most sort of radical and revolutionary fighters died. There's a great book by Sarah Shulman called The Gentrification of the Mind, where she okay. talks about exactly this, 
how mm. the AIDS pandemic caused a whole generation of radical leaders to pass away, or not yeah. a whole generation, but large parts of it. Yeah. And then the people that rose to fill their place of prominence within the gay community often had different kinds of aims. Another thing that mm. happened with AIDS that I think we have to acknowledge is that so many people had the experience of having their partner die and right. then being thrown out on the street because their relationship had no legal, legal recognition. recognition. And yeah. that's also part of it. People watching sure. their partner's homophobic family show up and take everything in trash bags and throw them out of the apartment right. and lose their health insurance. And if their partner got sick and they had really good health insurance, they couldn't share it. And all of these mm -hmm. things that made, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't only something that was happening in the, in this kind of radical conservative divide that I'm talking about. There were reasons right. why this became compelling to people. Another thing that happens here is that this generation of wealthier gay and lesbian people um, start to be political donors, right? And mm -hmm. start engaging as gay and lesbian people in politics, in not in a we're taking the streets way, but in a we're having a fundraiser for Senator so-and-so way. Right. Or we're starting an organization like the Human Rights Campaign. Yeah. Or like Lambda Legal, where it yeah. used to work. Or like, and, and, and it's, a, it's a different kind of advocacy, and it's an advocacy on behalf of a different kind of people and mm -hmm. towards different goals. If you want to be really cynical, uh, you could look at the tax savings for those donors before and after marriage. Now, of course, do I think that anybody should be more highly taxed because they're in a same-sex marriage than an opposite-sex marriage? No. Um, but I do think it's important, as it's important to say, generations of radical queer <laughs> critics have argued that same-sex marriage is not a radical political project. Same-sex right. marriage is a conservative political project. Um, yeah. And to the extent that it has helped secure people kinds of dignity within an existing system that they otherwise would be excluded from because of their sexual orientation, then I think it's probably a good thing. But I don't think we should right. have any misapprehensions that same-sex marriage is some kind of radical attack on the existing social system. And I think that's the point. And I think that's exactly the point, right? That marriage is so fundamental in our social system in America and in the West. And as you know, we have tax incentives for married couples, so many financial incentives. So our, 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 you know, our society really is centered around this idea of the nuclear family. Absolutely. And what this is trying to do, what this, what this proposal does, and this is Andrew Sullivan's goal quite clearly stated, is not to redefine the family through the inclusion of gay people, but to redefine gay people through integration into the family, right? To turn gay people from a threat to the existing social order into a component of the existing social order. And there are people who have made, I think, cases for same-sex marriage that have focused on the ways that same-sex marriage redefines or shapes or expands the definition of the family. And Andrew Sullivan's analysis was that Actually, it does more to gay people than it does to the family. And I think he's probably right. Huh. And how about some of those arguments that you mentioned that redefine family more than gay people? The arguments are that by taking gender role specifics out of the definition of the family, that we are redefining marriage and expanding its definition to make marriage include a lot of different more kinds of things. And that's something that I think you know, super far right critics of same-sex marriage uh, often scream Quite. and yell about, right? I mean, the, the, the easy to laugh at burlesque version of this argument is, well, we start by allowing same-sex marriage and then suddenly people are going to be marrying their dog. Right, right. And the, you know, 
maybe something we could think about would be, and I think on the level of the individual relationship, there are components of this that are true, right? Gay male marriages are, I think, significantly less likely to be sexually monogamous than marriages right. between, than opposite sex marriages. And that's something that has been demonstrated in studies. It's also been demonstrated that the relationships are not measurably more or less stable as relationships. And so you think, you know, there's a whole cultural conversation happening right now about kind of open relationships and non-monogamy and whatever. And to what extent did, as we did with a lot of other kinds of dating, gay people kind of the way. lead the way on that or whatever, fine. And, and, and that is interesting. It's important to talk about, right? But so long as those two people are still socially monogamous, married to each other, right. getting the tax benefit, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. then from a, from a social economic perspective, from a structural perspective, they're still a married couple and they're still operating the way that married couples operate. And anyone who knows anything about the history of marriage knows that sexual monogamy has never been uh, necessary, um, even if it's often been a desired component of marriage. Um, you know, the, the upper class has never let a few affairs right. get in the way of their marriages. So totally right. Like the facade is very important. The reality, not so much. And, you know, it's like that argument, Ben, like Mitt Romney, of course, you know, voted yes for same sex marriage this week, you know, for the Respect for Marriage Act rather. And, you know, I say like Mitt Romney is perfectly fine with the rich gay guys who live next door. I'm not sure how cool he would be walking down Folsom Street. You know, I think that's like a good analogy. Yes. And the other thing is, I think we have to get a little bit away from this idea um, that there's something necessarily because the rich gay guys that Mitt Romney is friends with might go to the Folsom street fair. Oh, right. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's I, the point I don't think is that there's something about sex radicalism that is necessarily politically revolutionary. There isn't. And that's been being complained about by gay liberation activists from as far back in any document I've ever looked at as people saying the the sexual component of this is part of it, but being, you know, swinging upside down by your toes from chandeliers does not mean that you're a revolutionary Marxist. Right. Um, that is true. With Mitt Romney, there's an additional layer of hypocrisy that I think we really have to get into. Go for it. Because, because I think, so I was, I grew up in Massachusetts. Yes, yes, I know. When Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts, when the first court decision came down legalizing same-sex marriage in Massachusetts, and he raised holy hell. He raised money for initiatives against it. He tried to use initiatives against it as a way to uh, revitalize the sort of moribund, moribund Massachusetts Democratic Party, uh, Republican Party, excuse me, sorry, sure. Massachusetts yep. Republican Party. He <coughs> just got on a soapbox against it and about how dangerous this was. And I don't think he believed that then. Like, right. I think what he voted for this week is probably about what he believes. Yes. But the the whole performance of how much we're supposed to all clap and cheer for the great hero of the gays, Mitt Romney, for voting on this law. Like, I, you know, he, this is somebody who has had every chance in a long political career to stand on the right side of these issues and who has chosen every time not to. Um, and now late career finally comes around to a conservative acknowledgement of the conservative side of this question. <laughs> and really, I think this has a lot more to do with political self-preservation than anything else. I mean, I think that the we should, we would be we would be absolutely stupid as gay and lesbian people um, to think that this decision should make us comfortable, that this law should make us comfortable. There is a nationwide near genocidal attack on queer people being played out right now 
The front line is trans kids, hundreds of bills being introduced in state legislatures to make trans healthcare illegal, to make the provision of trans healthcare a felony, to define being trans in public as a form of obscenity, to ban queer and trans books from schools, to ban saying the word gay in schools, to ban saying the word trans in schools. The state of Texas, it was just revealed, was making lists of the driver's license numbers of adult trans people, people who had changed the gender marker on their state ID. The spectacle of this right-wing Supreme Court majority forcing happily married, nice gay couples and nice lesbian couples apart in existing marriages, I think presented a potential threat to this ongoing right-wing project. And so mm. I think they made a bet. The bet was, if we codify existing same-sex marriages, and if we say that anybody who wants to get a same-sex marriage will still be able to, then when this Supreme Court makes decisions about things like abortion rights, which do affect queer people and which we should be a lot more mad about, um, when the Supreme Court makes decisions about trans rights and trans people, when the Supreme Court makes decisions about other kinds of other issues that are deeply relevant to gay people, you know, making decisions about the kinds of materials that are considered obscene and that can't be sent through the mail and that can't appear on the internet. The bet is that if these marriages and if the right to have your marriage recognized in other states is held, then it will reduce the pressure and it will reduce the political reaction to these decisions, um, which I think we should still expect. Yeah. And so while I, you know, I think it's a, on balance a good thing um, that people's existing marriages are not going to be ripped apart, even if this Supreme Court does something, I think that we should be really, really cautious to say, well, this means that we have solidified somehow the civil rights gains of the last 20 years, the last 30 years. On the one hand, we know that those civil rights gains are not sufficient. And on the other hand, we should not fool ourselves into thinking that they are not coming for us still and that they don't think that this was the thing, this was the issue that was just A, actually somewhat conservative and B, would just produce the worst kind of TV footage. Yeah, well, I mean... With that said, you know, I think that it's a great cover for Republicans, as you mentioned, to say, yeah, I mean, what do you mean? We're, we're not we're not bigoted. We're not anti-gay. Look, we codify same sex marriage. But then, but then how come more? But then how come more haven't gotten on board? Are they like, you know, because that seems like a. It's really interesting to watch this play out from Europe because so I live in right. Berlin. For people who don't know, right. yeah. the, the center right in most European countries um, has accepted the civil rights consensus. They won't push it forward any uh, ahead any further, but they've accepted it, right? You know, the Germany legalized same-sex marriage uh, in 2017, and the center-right party now says this is not an active. A majority of their MPs voted against it, but they now say we, we this is not an active issue. They're not mm. campaigning on it. Mm. Um, and in the U.S., we don't have what well, we do. The center-right party is a Democratic party, but we don't have a we don't have a sort of classic conservative party. We have a far-right party, the Republican Party. Right. And they have had individual members, and I think the senators who voted for this are among them, individual governors, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, who have tried to <coughs> kind of show the party the electoral light and accept these kind of yeah. popular items. Right. Um, and I think the problem is that one of the main constituent factors of the Republican coalition is evangelical Christians for whom same-sex marriage is anathema. And so I think they're trapped. I think that if you, the, the strategists 
and the right. people who are sitting thinking of stuff would probably love to be able to accept more of this stuff than they do. One of the um, occasional moments of uh, disturbing political cunning from Donald Trump in 2016 was, I think, the fact that he most said pro, most good pro things. gay president in history is what they would he said, say. He said yeah. good things about yep. same sex marriage. Yep. And I think that telegraphed moderation to a lot of people. And I think that helped him out. Now he pushed ahead and nominated judges who are pushing ahead uh, this genocidal anti trans, anti queer stuff. So it's really not, I'm not giving him any points here. I'm just saying that the, I think that strategically uh, it was clever. And I think that um, these individual people who voted for it, these opinionist Republicans who voted for it, have probably made the calculation that based on their home state's electorate, they are at less risk from the primary than they benefit they will get in the general. I used to be, a, I used to host a morning show on a right wing sports talk station in Boston, WEI. You may have heard of it if you were around here. And one of my co hosts, Jerry Callahan, who I do like a lot, I will say, but he would always kind of troll me. But he was right, saying, Hey, what do you hate Trump for? He's the only president who's ever stepped into the Oval Office pro gay marriage on day one. And it's like, Well, I mean, you know, it's a troll line, but it is technically true, even if he did everything against it. But uh, Ben, it was so, oh, and one last point I did want to mention too. You said Folsom Street. Uh, you can, you know, be the rich gays living next to Mitt Romney and still enjoy Folsom Street. I think the rich gays living next to Romney are probably the only people who can afford to go to Folsom Street these days, too. That's so. the thing. Yeah, you have to fly to San Francisco. You have to pay for the hotel room, and leather's expensive. It's especially the leather. It's just the good kind, you know? But uh, Exactly. Ben, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to episode 145 of the Sports Kiki podcast. And again, thanks to Ben Miller for taking the time coming on the show. And thank you, as always, for listening. If you want to get in touch with me, the best way to do that is to hit me up on Twitter at AlexReamer1 is my name. That again is at AlexReamer1. Uh, so long, everybody. And I will talk to you next Saturday on Christmas Eve. Yeah, we'll do a show because I'm not doing one the next week. I'm away. Ha. <laughs> I'll talk to you next Saturday. Uh, for yeah, our last show of 2022. Talk to you then.